The Bible declares that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The Bible further declares that it's the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, that cleanseth us from sin. Have you personally accepted Christ's sacrifice on the cross as the means of forgiveness of your sin? Have you received by faith the gift of eternal life? If not, today I encourage you to call on Christ. You say, Pastor Todd, I'm not sure how to do that. Come and see me afterwards at the connection point. I'll sit down with you, open the word of God, and show you the way of salvation. And you can leave here to leave today knowing that you have been forgiven of all your sin and you've received the gift of everlasting life. Take your Bibles with me this morning as we look in Acts chapter 5, verses 11 to 16. You know, as we look around at the moral corruption and the political correction within our society, as we experience an increasingly more challenging economic situation, we observe the polarization of politics. Some wonder what will happen to the church. The church, that is that body of repentant, believing, blood-washed sinners called by God to repentance and faith, that church will thrive. Today, we're going to look at what some Bible scholars consider to be a transitional passage within the history of the early church. And within it, we see a thriving church. So as we look at Acts chapter 5, verses 11 to 16 this morning, we are looking for the elements of what makes, what does a thriving church consist of? What are those keys? Look with me in our passage this morning in Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, where Luke records, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard those things. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, and, one of the, and none of the rest durst join himself to them. But the people magnified them, and the believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. And there came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Last week, we looked at Ananias and Sapphira, these spiritual hypocrites, and God's immediate and severe judgment of death upon them. For they thought that they could lie, not only to men, but to the very Spirit of God. And great fear fell upon the church and upon all those that heard it. As we look today at the keys to a thriving church, the first thing we see is the fear of God. Great fear fell upon them. Believers were warned of the consequences of spiritual hypocrisy, and they feared. Remember that Ananias and Sapphira were, they had a piece of land, and they sold it, and they brought a part of the price of the land, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. Nothing wrong with that. Peter said, while it was yours, while it was yours, it was your own. And when you sold it, was not the money yours. You didn't have to give the entire amount. That's up to you. But you acted, you implied so clearly that the Spirit of God, knowing your hearts and the apostles and those other believers around, 
You are lying to everyone saying that you were given the full price of the land. You were wanting the respect, the admiration. You wanted to appear more spiritual than what you really were in giving the entire price of the land. And God struck them with death. So great fear came upon the church and they feared spiritual hypocrisy. And we gleaned many practical applications from the passage of Scripture last week. We understand that God knows our hearts. And God hates spiritual hypocrisy. And we too should take warning from this passage. But also, I want you to understand that the fruit of godly fear is wisdom. The Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fruit of the fear of the Lord is wisdom. And another is holiness. We fear the Lord. And thus we realize that the holy God who hates sin has called us to be holy. In 1 Peter, in chapter 1, Peter writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says, Be therefore holy in all manner of conversation. That is in every aspect of your life, not just when you come to church. Not just when you're teaching a Sunday school class, not just when you are uh, acting as an usher or working in the nursery or in a Bible study, but in every avenue and in every facet of life, in all manner of living, be holy. God says, for I am holy. God expects us to walk in the fear of the Lord in holiness and to worship that way. Another thing that we see from verse 11 is that people outside the church, unbelievers, all those who saw it feared the Lord. And so people outside the church, unbelievers, were having a healthy respect for what was going on inside the church. In Psalm chapter 2 and verse 11, the Bible commands, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Let me just stop for a moment and say that Yes, we are to walk in the fear of the Lord, but the fear of the Lord is not the antithesis of the joy of the Lord. Those who walk in the fear of the Lord are walking in holiness and are walking in fellowship with God, and there is no more joyful place to be. The Bible says in Psalm 16, 11, that will, show me the, thy, that will show me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy at thy right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. Walking with God is the best walk in life. To walk in holiness is to walk in rejoicing. But as we come to worship the Lord, we worship the Lord with a reverential awe. And we rejoice with trembling. For we serve an awesome God. Reverential awe ought to permeate every aspect of our worship. Even how we dress. And there's no dress code at Berean Baptist Church for a worship service. But the way that we dress, the way that we sing, the way that we give, the way that we minister and teach and preach, all need to be characterized by love of an awesome God and an adoring fear of that awesome God. Greg Mazek said, we don't come before a casual God in a casual way. We come before a holy God in a reverent way. May our heart reflect the psalmist of Psalm chapter 5 and verse 7 where he writes, But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. He had experienced, by the way, the mercy of God and he rejoiced in it. But listen to this. In thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. 
And just because we have experienced the mercy and the grace of God does not give us any cause to fear God any less. It ought to cause us to have an even deeper, more reverential and respectful awe and wonder and fear towards our God. The first mark of a thriving church is that it clearly has the fear of God. Second, look in verse 12. And then we'll skip down to verses 15 and 16. In verse 12, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the apostles, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Now look down in verse 15, Insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets, laid them on benches and couches, at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There also came a multitude out of the cities round about Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. So the second is that there's going to be a doctrinal unity. They were all together in one accord in Solomon's porch. That word for one accord is a one word in the Greek. It's homothumadon. And it comes from two words, the one which means the same and the other which means a deep or a fierce passion. They shared an intense passion for the word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. If we're going to be a thriving church, we must share that passion together. We must call all of us, unify under the authority of the Word of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is not going to lead me in opposition to how He leads you. Because the Holy Spirit's not schizophrenic. And the Holy Spirit always guides and leads according to His Word. And the Bible tells us, Peter tells us, that the Word of God is of no private interpretation. When God spoke the words to the prophets and to the apostles, he had one intent. And it behooves us to find out what that intent is within the context of the scriptures and to allow the Holy Spirit to teach us and to lead us and then to walk in obedience to that in the reverential awe and fear of God. It is an adoring, loving fear. But there should be doctrinal unity. They publicly worshipped and served God. They were gathered together in Solomon's porch. This is not a porch like at your house. This is a portico. It was a, uh, it was a, a colonnade, so to speak. Uh, a series of columns with arches and a roof on it that was uh, that roof then attached to the outer wall of part of the temple complex. It was a common place. It was a thoroughfare. Um, within the temple for worship and it was the place where they would meet and where they would proclaim the gospel where they would worship the lord together and many of the signs and wonders done by the apostles were done there and the believers met there and they worshiped together the apostles performed signs and wonders which authenticated the gospel message notice that it was not the people performing the signs and wonders it was the apostles as the apostles would perform the signs and the wonders and specifically here we see that it is to cast out demons and it was uh, miracles of healing it authenticated the message it was god's way of saying these are my emissaries and this is my divine power given to them to work miracles so you better listen to the truth they're preaching because it's my truth i gave them my power they're preaching my word they're doing my work listen to them and it authenticated the gospel message that the apostles would preach but the apostles were not the only one preaching the the new believers they were proclaiming the gospel as well and they were unified in ministering the gospel and serving one another in worshiping the lord third look with me in verse 13 
the Bible says that the rest, the rest are the unbelievers. The rest durst or dared no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. So what is the third hallmark or the third key in a thriving church is that that church has an outstanding, a great, a distinct, a Christ-pleasing testimony in the community. The church was distinct from the surrounding culture. Folks, going to church ought to be different than going to a football game or going to a play or going to a concert. It is not the same atmosphere. It is not the same common interest. We come to worship the Lord God. We come to be transformed through the truth of the Word of God. We come to share with one another, to exhort one another, to encourage one another in what God is doing in our lives. We come to pray for one another, to minister and to serve one another, to serve God, to proclaim the gospel. We don't come for entertainment. We don't come for, and don't get this in the wrong way, because to be transformed into the image of Christ is self-improvement. But we cannot improve ourselves. We must invite God to improve us. We can't transform ourselves. We need Christ through the power of His grace, through the truth of the Word of God, and the leading teaching influence of the Holy Spirit on a moment-by-moment basis in our lives to transform us. That's what we're about. The rest, the unbelievers saw and experienced the supernatural power of God. They were healed. They saw others healed. And you know, this was so powerful. And, and, and the Bible says that. And the Bible does not say that this is what happened. Okay? Scholars differ. Did people who were laid within Peter's shadow as Peter is walking past, did the very shadow falling upon them, did that cause those who were not healed to be healed? It says they believed it. So much so that they acted on it and that they would lay the sick in the way where they thought Peter was coming so that his shadow might pass over them. I'll tell you this. If Peter passing by and his shadow fell on people and they were healed, it was not anything in Peter. It was not by Peter's power. Remember the man who was lame from birth? So why are you looking at us? Don't look at me. I didn't do this. God did this. Jesus Christ, the resurrected God, is the one who healed this man. And Peter's attitude would have continued. Hey, listen, I don't have any power. It is not in me. This is the power of God. This is God doing the work. If Peter's shadow falling on people, they were healed. It was because God honored the faith of those who acted on faith, believing that that would happen. And it was the miraculous mercy and grace of God to so do. But the rest also saw, I believe, the reverence, the holiness, the passion for truth of the church. And they didn't dare practice spiritual hypocrisy. Although the church was a loving and welcoming place and body, the church was not comfortable for unbelievers. I wanted to stop and commend you of Marine Baptist Church. Because in my 17 years of evangelism and growing up, on the road in evangelism from the time I was two years old with my parents until I went off to Bob Jones University at age 18. During all those years, I've been in hundreds of churches. And Berean is a very loving, warm, genuinely welcoming, loving church. And I'm so thankful for that. And I encourage you to continue to pursue that and to practice that. And by the way, 
It's very easy for us to say, oh, somebody else will do it. Everybody's that way. Every, someone else will do it. I, I, I can take a break this Sunday. Let me encourage you not to do that. <laughs> and while we need to be a loving and warm place where people can come in no matter, no matter what their language is, no matter how they smell, no matter how they look, no matter how they act, no matter what their background is, no matter how they identify, they need to be able to come in here and know that we love them and we care for them and that we have hope because God loves them. That their soul can be redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ as Jessica was singing about this morning. This needs to be a warm, welcoming church. But the way that we live and the way that we worship and the truth of God's word ought to make unbelievers squirm inside. Because the truth ought to be lovingly confronting and convicting. And our lives need to be the message also. And the people, the unbelievers, had greatly respected. When the Bible says they magnified them, talking about the church, they greatly respected and even spoke well of the church. That is, the genuine, sold-out believers. And then, so first we see the fear of God. That was the first key to a thriving church. The second doctrinal unity and cooperation of the believers in ministry the third being a great testimony in the community and then the last one is evangelistic growth look in the passage in verse 15 with me excuse me verse 14 and the believers were the more added to the lord multitudes both of men and of women the bible says they were added it's in the passive tense you know what that means it means we do the proclaiming, God does the saving. You know, there is a great relief for many believers who have grown up in churches where they are preached to about witnessing and they're put on a guilt trip because they're not seeing people saved. But we cannot save anybody. We can't convict anybody of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Bible says Jesus said that's the Holy Spirit's job. But we are to live lives of holiness that are convicting, that are convincing advertisements of the holiness and the love and the truth of our Savior. It's God that does the saving. We are to do the proclaiming. And the church and the apostles and the believers were proclaiming and living godly lives. Why? They were walking in the fear of the Lord. It gave them wisdom. They paid attention. They took heed. They did what they learned God wanted them to do. There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing. Wisdom is applying. To put it very simply. And holiness is a key to that. Not that we walk around with some sort of spiritual air, carrying a family Bible with a pious attitude. And that's not walking in holiness, folks, okay? But I'm talking about a sincere, godly, clean, doing right. That's righteousness. Doing right, living right, pleasing God. Separated from the ungodly trends and philosophy of the unbelieving evil age that surrounds us. And being dedicated distinctly to pleasing Christ and living for him. And loving others. And offering them hope. That's what it means to walk in holiness. And as we do that, then the last thing here is evangelistic growth. We do the proclaiming, God does the saving. 
when it says the more were added, it literally translates from the Greek that they kept on being added. That is, many men and women were being saved. A thriving church will be continually proclaiming the gospel and will be consistently seeing people saved. Yes, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. God hasn't changed. The efficacy and the power of the gospel has not changed. The Holy Spirit's not become any weaker. Folks are still being saved. We've got folks here this year walking with the Lord and saved that didn't know Christ as Savior last year. Praise the Lord for that. He did that. We're to be faithful. But if we're going to be a thriving church, then we are going to have an evangelistic fervor about us. And we're going to see evangelistic growth. It's great. And, and I rejoice when folks come, they move to the Atlanta area from other parts of the country. And they're looking for a church like ours that is fiercely loyal to the word of God, where we want to be transparent, where we want to be, that we want to be pliable to the spirit of God and the word of God, where we want the word of God to change our opinions and our lifestyle instead of reading our opinions and excusing our lifestyle by the word of God. We don't want to wrestle with the scriptures. And wrestle them, and I mean not wrestle with the truth and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the flesh lust against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. There's going to be that wrestling. I'm talking about we don't manipulate and twist the Scriptures to fit our paradigm. We change our paradigm to meet God's. We let Him transform us. That's what I'm talking about. But we should be continually proclaiming the gospel, and we should be consistently seeing people saved. We're going to be a thriving church. You say, what's it mean to be saved? Saved from what? I'm glad you asked. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. What is the wrath of God? It is because he is holy and because he is righteous, he must punish sin. And the wages of sin is death. And that death, Revelation 20, 14, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Say, so how could a loving God send anybody to hell? A loving God doesn't send anybody to hell. You're already headed there. Behold, you were shaped in iniquity and sin, did your mother conceive you? You came forth from the womb speaking lies. You are by nature and by action guilty of sin. You have willfully participated and acted against the will of God in your conscience. More than once. And you're already headed to hell. You're already condemned to the lake of fire. God doesn't have to send you there. But instead, God in mercy intercepted you at the cross. And he sent his son to die on the cross and shed his blood. And Jesus, the son of God, died as the full payment sacrifice for your sin. And he rose three days later and conquered death. He's a living son of God and he'll give you everlasting life. If you will acknowledge you're a sinner, turn away from any other hope of eternal life and believe only in Jesus and accept his gift that he paid for through the shedding of his blood and the sacrifice of himself on the cross and you can have eternal life. For the Bible tells us this in verse 10, for if when we were the enemies, why are we the enemies of God? Through our sin, we rebelled against him. We sinned against the very nature of God. The very law of God. We are reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Fred, if you don't know for sure where your soul would spend eternity, don't gamble with your soul. 
What is your life? It's even as a vapor. It appears for a little time, then vanisheth away. What is the average lifespan of man? It's three score years and ten. I just read an article last week that said that the actual, because of what we've gone through with COVID, the actual lifespan of the average American citizen has been reduced by a year and a half. You would think with all the advances in medicine, we'd be living longer, wouldn't you? Or maybe, like my grandma, who's 104, maybe you live that long. But you're still going to die. And eternity is a whole lot longer than 105. Friend, are you ready? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Why? Because he is holy and just. He, is, he loves you. But you know what the Bible says about God? This may surprise you. The Bible says that God's angry with the wicked every day. It is a holy anger. It is a righteous anger. He is wrathful against anger, against sin. But he loves you. He's a God of mercy and grace and love. And he made the way, one way, and that is Jesus Christ. And it's the way that you can be rescued from eternal death, be given eternal life, and receive all of the wonderful benefits and blessings of being eternally a child of his. I wonder if Luke, writing by the Holy Spirit of God, would describe Berean Baptist Church as a thriving church. Thought about that this week. It's not for me to judge or to evaluate. Only God knows the heart. But I wondered and I prayed that if we are not, we will become. And if we are, that we will continue to be a thriving, by this biblical definition, a thriving church. And I conclude by saying this. If we're going to be a thriving church, we must be having thriving believers because a church, a thriving church consists of thriving believers. So as we get ready for our time where this morning our musicians will come and play a hymn, we'll bow our heads, we'll meditate on the truth that we have heard, we will respond to the Lord in our hearts, we'll not have a come forward invitation this morning, although we sometimes do. If you're a believer, would you meditate on these questions? If you are not a believer or not sure you are a believer, I would encourage you during our time of meditation that you would just pray to God and say, God, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. I'm scared about what's going to happen to my soul in eternity. I want to understand how I can be reconciled to you and not be your enemy but become your child. God, would you please show me the truth? Would you give me the courage to ask somebody to help me? Maybe there's somebody that invited you. You're the guest of somebody here this morning, one of our church people. And you can just go to them and say, hey, I need to talk to you about, about something. And get along privately with them and say, hey, look, I am not absolutely sure where I'm going to spend eternity, and I want to settle that. And let them take the word of God and show you the way of salvation. You can come back to the connection point. I'll be back there. If you're a lady, my wife will be back there. She can take the word of God and show you the way of salvation. It's the most important decision you will ever make for now or all eternity. But if you're a believer, I want you to meditate on these following questions because a thriving church consists of thriving believers. Do you worship and live with a reverential awe of God? Again, don't just check this off right now. Don't answer immediately. Let this be one of those things that you meditate on and ask the Spirit of God to reveal to you if this is true or how true. Second, do you have a passion and a loyalty to the truth of God's Word that unites you with other like-minded believers? 
Does your life contribute to the testimony of Christ's body, the church? And are you actively obedient to the Great Commission, sowing and watering the seed of the gospel? Shall we bow our heads as we begin our time meditating all the truth that we've heard? I will lead us in prayer, and then our musicians will begin to play. Our Father, this morning, we come with great joy and rejoicing. Our sins, we who are saved, our sins have been forgiven, cleansed by your blood. We've been given eternal life, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and that enables us to understand your word and, and to live it. You've given us so much to look forward to in eternity, and so much joy and peace now. Lord, that heavy burden of the guilt of our sin has been rolled off of us. We are free. And we rejoice, but we rejoice in trembling before you who are such a God to be feared, to be held in such high esteem and reverence. Oh Lord, may we in our lives individually fear you, walk, live in the fear of the Lord. Yes, joyfully, yes, with rejoicing, but with a godly reverence. Oh Lord, I pray also that you would work in us, that we would that we would seek to be unified as a church body under sound doctrine. And that we would be united in the sense that we are all willing to allow our prejudices, our preconceived notions, our preferences to become subjugated to the authority of the word of God and be teachable and changeable. And that then we would not only cooperate with you as you change us by your grace and through your word, but then that we would cooperate as brothers and sisters in Christ in advancing the kingdom of God by encouraging and strengthening and equipping each other and then by being a church that sees evangelistic growth because we are a soul-loving, gospel-proclaiming bunch of believers that do it as a body and do it in teams and do it individually. And Lord, through that, may you receive the glory and may our testimony not be for us, but for you and for your kingdom. Should there be somebody by way of live stream or here with us today in person that is not written in the Lamb's book of life, that is not born again. Father, would you shine the truth in their heart? Would you draw them, Father, to your Son in love? Would you, Holy Spirit, convince of sin, righteousness, and judgment, illumining their heart to the truth? And may they, understanding your love and the offer of salvation, even as Jessica saying, no one has come to Christ for forgiveness and for salvation, cleansing from sin and been denied. Indeed, Lord Jesus, you promised that all who come to you are yours and you will never cast one out. And we thank you for that wonderful hope this morning. So Lord, now as we meditate while our musicians play our invitation song, may we be submissive and obedient and allow you to transform us through your truth. In Jesus' name.